into captivity. They were taken into captivity. God raised up Assyria to deal with the apostate Jews in the northern kingdom of Israel when the ten northern tribes separated from the two southern tribes. They got into Baal worship, which involved the worship of the Queen of Heaven. God used the Assyrians to judge the apostate Jews there in the northern kingdom. Then that Queen of Heaven worship filtrated down to the southern kingdom of Judah. And so God raised up Babylon to come and deal in judgment upon the southern kingdom of Judah because they allowed themselves to get sucked into and away from the true and the living God and worshiping a false goddess that was purely man-made even centuries before that generation of Jews came into existence. God, demonstrating graphically to the, the people of Israel, there's only one true and living God, the one that brought you out of Egypt. And if you obey me and my word I've given to you, I'll bless you more than any other nation upon planet Earth. But if you disobey me and my word I've given to you, I will curse, vex, and frustrate you, allow you to be conquered by foreign nations, removed from your homeland, scattered among the nations, and there you will despair for life itself. Very tragic, tragic history taking place. Now, I want to shift gears and deal with a totally different subject but comes back and relates to the people of Israel and how they've suffered because of their being out of joint with God historically. A number of years ago, I was speaking at a Bible conference down south. And in one of my messages, I presented to the people the fact that the General Assembly of the United Nations in uh, 1947, November of 1947, passed a resolution to the effect that the land that the Romans had renamed the land of Palestine, we would say the land of Israel, should be subdivided into two divisions. The UN mandated that. And one division was to be given to Arab people for an independent Arab state in that part of the Middle East. But the UN mandated the other division was to be given to Jewish people from around the world for them to return to their ancient homeland and restore their state of Israel there in the Middle East. At the conclusion of that particular service, four men marched to the front to confront me. And they said to me, the United Nations never passed a resolution to give the Jews a portion of land in the Middle East to reinstitute the nation state of Israel. I said, how can you say the United Nations did do that? The history books restore the fact they did. doesn't matter what the history books said. That never happened. I said, you go to UN headquarters in New York and get out the original copy of their, their mandate. doesn't matter if it's there at the UN headquarters. That never happened. I couldn't believe it. I mean, contrary to reality, what they were saying. And they said the Jews had no government authority to go in there in the Middle East and set up a nation state of Israel. They went in of their own accord. They drove out the Arab people who were living there. Therefore, the Jews have no right to be there. They all ought to be driven into the Mediterranean Sea. These were, quote-unquote, Christian men, Dutch Reformed, Reformed theology from Grand Rapids, Michigan area. Grand Rapids, Michigan area. Now, let me take this further. Just read to you part of an article. It's written uh, by... This is a Bible-believing man, but his theology in some areas is different from ours, and it would be here as well. The first statement in the article is this. We are not dispensationalists. Halfway through the article, he says, when people say, well, what about the Jews? What about the Jews? He says, here we are. 
We believe that the church is essentially Israel. And then uh, he went on to say that God is done with Israel as a nation and that he's replaced Israel with the church. And the church, he says, is now the new Israel, the new Israel of God. Instantly, there was a Jewish believer wrote to him and said, too bad you weren't in the streets of Berlin in 1943 saying, here we are, we are the Jews. If you'd been doing that, you wouldn't be here today. What's, what is this teaching? And again, these are some Bible-believing Christians. They believe the truth about Jesus, that he died for our sins, rose from the dead. They believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God. But they claim that because Israel rejected Jesus as a nation, it rejected Jesus at his first coming and had him crucified, that God has forever rejected the nation of Israel as his people. And God has abrogated, done away with, the Abrahamic covenant that God established with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the people of Israel uh, back, you know, centuries and centuries before Jesus came into the world. Abrahamic covenant where God says this covenant is forever an everlasting covenant between me and the people of Israel. Well, the people I just described that said God's done with Israel because he rejected Jesus said, because Israel rejected Jesus, God broke that Abrahamic covenant. He abrogated that covenant. It's no longer in effect. Even though God said it's an everlasting covenant with Israel, God has broken that with Israel because they rejected his son, had him crucified, and therefore Israel is no longer the people of God, God's chosen people. And God has replaced Israel with the church. And the church is now the new Israel, the Israel of God. He'll save individual Jews, but he has no present or future plan for the nation of Israel whatsoever, whatsoever. That's basically, briefly, a description of what is called replacement theology. Again, the idea is God has replaced the nation of Israel with the church. And so the church is now God's Israel here upon planet Earth. And... uh, Interestingly, there are many Christians and Christian church groups today who believe and teach that, believe and teach that today. In fact, some church denominations, and we'll refer to some of them, Lord willing, later on here this evening, some church denominations have petitioned businesses who carry on trade with Israel to cut off all trade with Israel so that Israel's economy will be destroyed and the nation of Israel will just have to disappear from the face of the earth altogether. And we'll name some of those denominations a little bit later on. And some groups have tried to influence the United States government to change its policy of support for Israel that has been in effect since 1948. As a result of the United Nations mandate in 1947, Israel on May 14, 1948, announced the establishment of the new state of Israel in their ancient homeland ancient homeland, and the first world leader to officially, on behalf of his nation, recognize Israel's right to exist as a nation state was President Truman of the United States. And he did that in 1948, within within a day after the Jews announced the establishment of the new state of Israel in the Middle East. But now there have been church groups and Christians who have been trying to influence the United States government to change their attitude toward the nation of Israel uh, in the Middle East. Now, how did this replacement theology begin? 
I want to point out to you, this is nothing new. Amazingly, when you look at history, replacement theology began within organized Christendom within a hundred years after the apostles of Jesus Christ were dead at off the world scene. It goes way back that far. Within a hundred years after the twelve apostles of Christ had died, replacement theology began. Now let me, I'm going to have to do a survey fashion here of some of history of how this took place, but also the ramifications of it and how it has changed things dramatically within organized Christendom, even within the world, and dramatically for Jewish people worldwide. When you look at the book of Acts, the church began, was born on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, just several days after Jesus had ascended to heaven. That was the birth of the church. And at first, for the first several years of the church's existence, its entire membership was Jewish for the first several years. Jewish people who had believed in Jesus as their Messiah and as their Savior. But Jewish people who rejected the idea that Jesus was the Messiah began to persecute the Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. So the early church, which was totally Jewish in membership, began being persecuted by Jewish unbelievers. And when you read the book of Acts, that forced the Jewish believers of the church to leave Jerusalem and spread out other areas of the Middle East. And as those Jewish believers spread out, they began sharing the gospel with other people. If you read in Acts, some went up to Samaria, who were they regard as half-breeds, part Jew, part Gentile. They went up there, and Samaritans got saved. Jesus Christ. Now you had people who weren't totally Jewish coming to the church. Others went to Gentile people. Even before Paul, even before the Apostle Paul, who was appointed by God to be the key apostle to the Gentiles with the gospel, Jewish people were scattered because they were persecuted back home, went into areas where the Gentiles were predominant people, shared the gospel with them, and now Gentiles began to get saved. The end result was that by 100 A.D., this is like 60-some years after Jesus ascended to heaven. The majority of people in the church by 100 A.D. were Gentile. And now the Jewish members were a minority within the church. And God wanted, you know, the Gentiles to get saved. Great multitudes of them as well as Jewish people to get saved. But as a result, some of the Gentiles that got saved were strongly anti-Semitic. In their outlook, they didn't like Jews. In fact, that was true of some of the key early church leaders, Gentile church leaders that came into the church. And uh, they began the idea that now the Christians have replaced the Jews as God's people, his unique people. And the church is now God's Israel that has replaced the nation state of Israel, etc., and uh, a, a very famous church historian, Adolf Harnack, who uh, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, was about the, the world's most renowned church historian, uh, made this statement that uh, now these Gentile church leaders, many of them, regard themselves as the true spiritual heirs of Israel. They claim for themselves the promises which the Hebrews held that Yahweh had made to them. And so Adolf Harnack said the Christians held that the Jews, having been rejected by God, they themselves had become the chosen people. And now these Gentile church leaders who are anti-Semitic began claiming that God permanently ended 
Israel's unique relationship with God as a nation and he's replaced it with the church as his unique people. And so now the Christians are the Israel of God. And uh, this was a tremendous shift away from what the scriptures had indicated and, and were teaching. Now, just to give you some examples of this, and this by no means are an exhaustive list of church leaders who went this route. The one of the earliest, earliest ones was a church leader by the name of Justin Martyr. Uh, he was called Justin Martyr because he ended up being martyred for his faith by pagan Gentiles, martyred him because of his faith. But Justin Martyr lived from 100 to 165 A.D. And he carried on uh, almost a, a literary battle back and forth between, between him as a Christian defending who Jesus is and Jewish unbelievers who were trying to say Jesus was not the true Messiah. And in bitterness, because of the way the Jewish unbelievers were attacking their faith, he said the Christians are, quote, the true Israelitic race. We are now the true Israelites. We Christians are now the true Israelites, not the Jews. They're not true Israelites. We Christians who believe in Jesus as Messiah and Savior, we are the true Israelites. And uh, he asserted that the biblical expression, the seed of Jacob, which was talking about Jacob's biological descendants. You know, Jacob fathered 12 sons. Those 12 sons became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. He began to say that the biblical expression, the seed of Jacob, when properly understood, now refers to the Christians and not to the Jews. The Christians are now the seed of Jacob and not the Jews, the seed of Jacob here in the world. Here was another early church leader by the name of Tertullian. Tertullian. And he lived from 145 to 220 A.D. 145 to 220 A.D. And he was a very prominent church theologian in North Africa. You see, before Islam began in the 600s A.D., North Africa had thousands of churches all across North Africa, from Egypt in the east, clear out to the Atlantic Ocean in the west. Christianity had spread like wildfire across North Africa before Islam came along and wiped out most of Christianity after Islam went out to conquer the world on behalf of their god, Allah. Tertullian reinterpreted what God said about the twin boys, Esau and Jacob, that Isaac's wife, Rebekah, gave birth to. And you know, when she gave birth, they were twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the first one born. And then, probably within an hour... Jacob, the second one, was born. And so Esau was regarded as the elder of the two and Jacob the younger of the two. And God said, in light of that, the older one, Esau, is going to end up serving the younger one, Jacob. And that actually happened. And God talking about the two men, two brothers. Well, Tertullian reinterpreted that and said, Esau, the older brother, represents the Jews. And Jacob, the younger brother, represents the Christians. And therefore, since God said the older one is to serve the younger one, therefore, the Jews are to serve the Christians. Because the Jews were older, the older people of God. They're to serve the newer people of God, the Christians. So the Jews are to serve the Christians, and the Christians are to rule over the Jews. Rule over the Jews. I mean... God intended talking about two men, not two groups of people here. Two men is what God had in mind. 
But they began reinterpreting the Bible in that, in that particular way. Then, so they were began saying, the Christians will overcome the Jews by the will of God, and Jews will serve the Christians. That's God's intention. Based on that, on that, the birth of those twin brothers to Rebecca, Isaac's wife. Then there was another church leader by the name of Origen. And he lived from 185 to 253 A.D. 185 to 253 A.D. He lived in the city of Alexandria in Egypt. And he was the president of a school of theology, almost like we would call a theological seminary, a Christian one there in Alexandria, Egypt. But he greatly influenced the church's acceptance of a wrong method of interpreting the Bible. Now, history demonstrates the correct method of interpreting the Bible is the historical grammatical method. What I mean by that is you allow the words to have their common ordinary meaning in the Bible. And so if it says Israel, that means the people or nation of Israel. The historical grammatical method, in a sense, is giving a literal interpretation of the words. Let them represent exactly what they're saying. And so if the church, word church, that means the church, literally. Israel, that means the nation of Israel, literally. That's the correct method of interpreting the Bible, the historical grammatical method. You look at historical background that will shed light on the meaning of this passage, and you look at the grammar, the language, tenses of verbs, the voice of all this, to properly understand what it's saying, and let the words say what they normally say. Well, Origen said that's the worst method of interpreting the Bible. And he developed about 16 different methods for interpreting the Bible. And by the 16th, each one he developed got further and further and further away from the literal meaning of the words of the Bible. But the one that he popularized the most was called the allegorical method. The allegorical method of interpreting the Bible, which means you don't give the words their, their common literal meaning. You spiritualize it. You look for some hidden meaning behind the word. And that method allowed him to claim that the word Israel in the Bible does not mean the literal nation of Israel. It means the church in most passages. The word Israel in the Bible is not referring to the literal nation of Israel. It's referring to the church. Now, another key leader was a, name, a man by the name of Cyprian. C-Y-P-R-I-A-N, Cyprian. He lived from 195 to 258 A.D., he was the bishop of the city of Carthage in North Africa. The bishop of the city of Carthage in North Africa. And this is what he stated, quote, uh, or what were, somebody wrote about him. He endeavored to show that the Jews, according to what had before been foretold, had departed from God and had lost God's favor, which had been given them in time past and had been promised them for the future while the Christians have succeeded to their place, deserving well of the Lord by faith. He said that uh, God was showing that the Jews, because they had departed from God, rebelled against God, that they lost God's favor, and that God took the promises he given to them for the future, and now has applied that to the Christians and to the church. So the church has replaced Israel, and the church now inherits the promises that God gave to the literal nation of Israel. Again, it's the whole idea of replacement theology. The church 
has replaced Israel as God's people. And so all the, the promises of blessing God gave to Israel now comes to the church. Interestingly, they forget about the promises of judgment God gave to Israel if they disobeyed him. They ignored that. But we inherit all the promises of blessing that God gave to the nation of Israel because we're now the new Israel. Now, having that, I'm just briefly tracing how that began. There are many other key church leaders that played a role in this. We don't have time to deal with all of them. But just so you begin to get the idea, what do we mean by replacement theology? But now we want to shift gears a little bit and look at the effects of replacement theology upon the church. The effects of replacement theology on the church. Replacement theology played a significant role in producing major changes, major changes in two areas of organized Christendom. Again, replacement theology played a significant role in producing major changes in two areas of organized Christendom. And those two areas are ecclesiology. What do we mean by ecclesiology? Well, ecclesiology deals with what is the nature of the church and what is the function of the church. You know, what's the nature of the church to be and how is the church to function? Ecclesiology. And replacement theology radically changed that, as we're going to see here in a moment. But the other area it radically changed was eschatology. What does God say in the scriptures about the future, particularly about the future of Israel in the word of God? So replacement theology radically changed organized Christendom in those two areas of theology, ecclesiology and eschatology. Let me deal first with ecclesiology, the nature and function of the church. Replacement theology played a key role in the development of the whole Roman Catholic system. It's not the only thing that did. Other things did too. Uh, paganism, once the Roman government in the 300s AD decreed now all the pagan religions are outlawed by decree of the government, uh, the only religion allowed is Christianity. But one of the really key things that changed the church and its ecclesiology was replacement theology. And again, played a significant role in the development of Roman Catholicism. Now, how is that? Well, because Gentile leaders concluded that the church is now the Israel of God, the new Israel, they began to appropriate to the church things that God had instituted specifically for the nation of Israel. They said, in essence, since we're the new Israel, God must want the church to have some of the things he gave to the original Israel, the nation of Israel. Okay? Since God gave Israel a priesthood, since the church is the new Israel, God must want the church to have a priesthood, a priesthood. And so slowly but surely, some of these church leaders I've mentioned, but many others, began changing the titles of church leaders from pastors or elders to priests, to priests. Then they began to say, since God gave the nation of Israel a multi-tiered priesthood with one high priest at the top, and other labels of priesthood underneath, and then the Levites under them, then God was what the church, the new Israel, to have what he gave to the old Israel, a multi-tiered priesthood with one high priest at the top and different layers of priesthood underneath, that one high priest at the top. And so what they began uh, saying was this, uh, in each local church you have what we call a bishop, they said. He's the, the key leader of the local church. 
All right, but who's going to see to it that the bishops of all the local churches do the job that they're supposed to do? We have to have somebody higher in authority over them. And so then they invented a new, a new level called the monarchical bishop. He's the ruling bishop, the ruling bishop. Well, then who's going to see to it that the monarchical bishops do their job right, the way they're supposed to before God? They had to create a next higher step, uh, in which they called the metropolitan bishop. And the reason they called him that was they would take the key bishop of the largest church in a major city or metropolitan area and put him in authority over the monarchical bishops of all the local churches within that area. All right, but then who's going to see to it that the uh, these metropolitan bishops do their job the way they're supposed to do it? Well, then we have, have another layer of priesthood and authority over them, archbishops, archbishops. And so you have several metropolitan bishops under the authority of one archbishop. All right, but then who's going to see to it that all the archbishops do the work they're supposed to do? We invent another layer of priesthood called cardinals. And so now you have several archbishops under the authority of one cardinal. But then who's going to see to it that the cardinals do their job? One man at the top. The Pope. The Pope. And this was the result of the thinking of replacement theology. We're the new Israel. So since God gave Israel layers of priesthood with one high priest at the top, he must want the new Israel, the church, to have layers of priesthood with one high priest at the top. Then, since God gave the nation of Israel continuing blood sacrifices, since God gave the nation of Israel continuing blood sacrifices, with animals. Church leaders began saying, well then God must want the new Israel, the church, to have a continuing blood sacrifice. But now it can't be animals, like it is with the little nation of Israel. So slowly but surely, they began changing the significance of the communion service. From the communion service of the elements simply being a memorial of the death of Jesus Christ, once for all, of the cross of Calvary for the sins of the world, it now becomes a continuing blood sacrifice. And slowly but surely, began introducing the idea that now when communion is observed, there's a miracle takes place by which the bread is converted into the literal flesh of Jesus Christ and the wine is converted into the literal blood of Jesus Christ so that every time communion is observed, Jesus is being sacrificed again and again, and again, and again, and again. Completely contrary to what the New Testament said. Paul in Romans 6 said, Christ died once. And the book of Hebrews said, he died once for all. You know, never to die again. Why did Jesus, the last thing he cried out from the cross? It's finished. His once for all death for the sins of mankind was completed once for all forevermore. If he had to be, have it done again and again and again, or people have to add something to that good works, then it wasn't finished when Jesus died on the cross. And he lied when he said it's finished. All the work necessary for sinful human beings to come to the saving knowledge of God through his son Jesus Christ and his once for all death upon the cross of Calvary. So now they changed the whole concept of communion a continuing blood sacrifice, and that became known as officially as transubstantiation. Substance plus trans. Trans means a cross. And so the idea is one substance 
is transferred over into another substance. Bread, by a miracle, is transferred from being bread into flesh of Jesus Christ. Wine, instead of just being wine, is transferred into the blood of Jesus Christ. Transubstantiation. That's the official name for that whole concept of the communion service. So this replacement theology played a key role in radically changing the function of the church and uh, also the nature of the church, the nature of the church. What about the area, other area, that it greatly impacted the church? And that's eschatology. Eschatology. What does the Bible teach about future things? The Jews, in the light of the Old Testament scriptures, believed and taught that in the future, God's Messiah was going to come to the earth and set up God's kingdom rule upon the earth and administer God's rule over planet earth for the last days of world history. The Jews believed and taught that. The ancient rabbis did because that's what the Old Testament taught. What the Old Testament taught. And not only did they believe and teach that, Jesus taught that. The apostles taught that. That Christ is going to come a second time to planet Earth, the whole way down, live here for a thousand years, but when he comes, he's going to set up God's kingdom rule upon the Earth, and as God's last Adam, he'll administer God's rule the way God wants it administered upon our planet for the last thousand years of its world history. Well, interestingly, replacement theology began to change this as well. Began to replace this, change this as well. Now let me point out to you, that view that the ancient rabbis taught in the base of the Old Testament and Jesus taught, the apostles taught, in the first 300 years of the church's existence, that view was called Kiliasm, from the Greek word for 1,000. The idea is Christ is going to reign for 1,000 years. So we call it today premillennialism, which is the idea that Christ comes before the millennium to planet Earth and sets up the millennium and rules for 1,000 years. But the early church called it Kiliasm, the idea he will reign on behalf of God for a thousand years here upon planet Earth. Well, interestingly, even within a hundred years after the apostles were gone, church leaders in the eastern half of organized Christendom, like from the middle part of the Mediterranean Sea east over into the Middle East, because there were a lot of churches in the land of Israel, there were churches in, in Syria, there were churches in Lebanon, and, and all areas of the Middle East, some of the early church leaders over there said, wait a minute, this idea that Christ is going to come, the Messiah is going to come, and literally rule the world for a thousand years, that's a Jewish view, because the Jews believed that and taught that for the centuries. And because that's Jewish, we've got to reject that. We have to reject that altogether, because it's Jewish. And God's done with the Jews and Jewish ideas. And so they began saying, we have to reject this. In fact, there was one church leader. He was a bishop of the church in Alexandria, Egypt. One of the bishops, key one in the eastern half of organized Christendom there. His name was Dionysius. And he began to say, the only way we can bury Kiliasm, in other words, premillennialism, is get rid of the book of Revelation out of the canon of the scripture. As long as the book of Revelation is in the Bible, we'll never be able to bury this Jewish view that Messiah is going to come and literally rule the world on behalf of God for a thousand years. And so Dionysius went on a one-man crusade of the Eastern Church 
to get the church leaders in the eastern half of organized Christendom to remove the book of Revelation from the canon of the Bible altogether, and he succeeded. And so the eastern church leaders removed the book of Revelation from the canon of Scripture. They kept it out for several centuries until finally almost every remnant of belief in a premillennial second coming of Christ who comes back to set up God's kingdom rule is removed from the church teaching altogether. And uh, he succeeded in doing that, you know, within the 100s to 200s A.D., in getting that out of the eastern branch of the church. Now, interestingly, in the western branch of the church, Kiliasm, or what we call premillennialism, lasted longer. The one of the key church leaders over there was a man by the name of Jerome. And he decided to go over into the eastern part of the church, actually went over to Jerusalem and studied under uh, church leaders there. And they persuaded him to reject Kiliasm, what we call, what we believe in teach, premillennialism. And so when he returned back to Western Europe, after years of studying this, there among the Eastern Church leaders, he began teaching what the Eastern Church leaders had adopted, rejection of Kiliasm. And he began persuading other church leaders to reject the original eschatological view of the church that Jesus taught, the apostles taught, the Old Testament taught as well. And finally, they were able to get it rejected even within most of the Western church by the early 400s A.D., the early 400s A.D., and what, which means now, if that's not what the Bible teaches about the future, we have to come up with another view of the kingdom of God. You know, that the Jews used to believe would be set up by Christ, uh, the Messiah, when he comes and sets up God's kingdom rule upon the earth. And the church leader who developed a whole new view of eschatology was Augustine. Augustine. He lived from 354 to 430 A.D., 354 to 430 A.D. Now, and he was the bishop of Hippo, a city in North Africa, when Christianity was very strong there in North Africa. He made greater influence upon organized Christendom than any other church leader between his day and the day of Martin Luther in the days of the Reformation. Tremendous influence that he had. When he got saved, he originally believed in Kiliasm, thousand-year reign of Jesus upon the earth. However, before he got saved, he was deeply immersed in Greek philosophy. And that Greek philosophy ingrained into his thinking, anything physical is evil. Just because it's physical, it's evil. Only things that are not physical are good. And he began saying, if I'm going to interpret the prophecies in the Bible about the future uh, kingdom of God, literally... That's foretelling great physical blessings upon planet Earth. Great abundance of food. Nobody will have to say I'm hungry, the prophet said, when Messiah rules the world in the future. Great productivity of animal life. That's physical blessing. And the natural elements and, uh, of, of the universe and everything be controlled perfectly for the good of life. He said that's physical blessing, but anything physical is evil. And so because the influence of Greek philosophy on his mind he rejected the original view he would taught when he became a Christian of a thousand-year political reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth when physical blessing, all diseases, deformities abolished, and all the rest are foretold when Messiah reigns. So he rejects the original view of the church. Now he has to come up with a new one. And so he's the one that develops 
a new concept of the kingdom of God foretold in the Bible, and he developed a new eschatological view called amillennialism. Amillennialism. Now, the prefix ah is like in the word atheist. A means no. Atheist, no God. Ah, millennialism, no millennium. No literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ here upon planet Earth in the future. And what he began saying is this. The church is the kingdom of God that God foretold for the future of the world through the Old Testament prophets and that Jesus talked about and the apostles talked about. The church is the kingdom of God. Not a literal political rule of God's son Messiah over the earth for a thousand years. And it's a totally spiritual form of the kingdom of God and it was established in conjunction with the first coming of Christ whereas the Bible talks about the future kingdom of God being established in conjunction with the second coming of Christ toward the end of world history. So he began uh, emphasizing the church is the kingdom of God foretold in the Bible for the world. And so that kingdom of God is already here. Well, what happened was the Roman church grabbed hold of that. The church had headquartered the city of Rome and said that means, therefore, the Roman church is the kingdom of God upon the earth foretold by God in the scriptures. We are God's kingdom. Therefore, we administer God's rule and God's will upon the whole world. That's what God has ordained for the Roman church, the Roman Catholic church. And as a result of that, they said, therefore, the church has the authority of God to tear down kings and emperors if they resist what the church says or to install new kings and emperors, and the ones they remove from office. And the church, because it's God's kingdom, has God's authority to rule everyone and everything here upon planet Earth, the Roman church, to do that. And as a result of that, as you come into the Middle Ages, the Roman church became a huge political religious machine that dominated every aspect of life in Western Europe all up through the Middle Ages, right up to the time of the Protestant Reformation here upon planet Earth. Now, in light of that, what was the effects of this upon the Jews? Upon the Jews. Because we're the kingdom. The Jews are not part of this. They're no longer God's people. The church is God's Israel now. That had devastating effects upon the Jewish people through the Middle Ages. Replacement theology played a key role in the persecution of Jews by the Roman Catholic Church and Roman Catholic political rulers for centuries to come. In the name of Jesus Christ, hundreds of thousands of Jews were slaughtered as Christ killers all through the Middle Ages and coming right up to the time of the Reformation, up to the time of the Reformation. When the Crusaders marched across Europe, supposedly to go over to the Middle East, to drive out the, the Muslims who were in control of the Holy Land, on their way over, they would eliminate whole cities and towns of Jewish people, men, women, and children, to slaughter them in the name of Jesus Christ. Because you Jews are Christ killers. You're the ones who killed Jesus. How can you say that when these are generations later than the Jews who rejected Jesus at his first coming? 
But this was the whole concept. And, and in our book, we even trace in survey fashion many of the examples of this that took place over and over and over and over again. And kings were the Roman church demanded you eliminate all the Jews from your country. Get rid of them. Either by driving them out, if they resist, kill them. They would take Jewish children away from Jewish parents and say, you're not going to raise these children because you're going to raise them to be Jews. We're going to raise them to be Christians. And over and over and over again, they would do this. And it just was devastating to the Jewish people for all the centuries of the Middle Ages. And uh, again, we give you many examples of this, but it's not a pleasant it's not a pleasant history of what took place. That's why it's so hard sometimes when you try to witness to Jews about Jesus Christ. They say, don't talk to me about Jesus Christ. I know what was done to my ancestors in his name. They were accused of being Christ killers and, and eliminated. Now, Protestant Reformation started in the 1500s, started in Germany with Martin Luther. And then it spread down into Switzerland, through Ulrich Zwingli, through John Calvin, over into France. Some a group of people got saved there, in the Netherlands, and eventually into England and Scotland, the Protestant Reformation that took place. The Protestant reformers, they broke away from the Roman Catholic Church in several key areas of ecclesiology and doctrine, for which we're very grateful. They broke away from some of the false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church historically. However, they still held on to the amillennial view of the kingdom of God upon planet Earth that was, had been developed by Augustine back there in the early 400s A.D. And they also held on to the idea of replacement theology, that God has done with Israel as a nation. He's replaced it with the church. Now, that doesn't mean that all the Protestant reformers were persecutors of the Jews. But I hate to tell you this, and this is probably a shock to you. One of them was, though, a horrendous persecutor of the Jews, Martin Luther. Martin Luther initially told his people, be kind to the Jewish people. Go out of your way to serve them and do kind deeds for them, because through that means we're going to win them to Jesus Christ. And it didn't work. And as a result, he became so bitter and hateful toward the Jews he wrote some of the most hateful, vitriolic language of hate against Jews ever put on a printed page. And he began saying from the Pope to his people, destroy their synagogues, burn their homes, abuse them as forcefully as you can. These Jews are the scourge of mankind. And the faster they're eliminated from planet Earth, the better off the human race will be here upon the earth. Horrendous, horrendous things that he wrote along these lines. And the tragedy was this. The Nazis, they took Luther's writings and used them to persuade German people to help in annihilating the Jews from the face of the earth. From the face of the earth. You know, I don't know how many, are you familiar with the term Kristallnacht? Kristallnacht? Okay. That was the night in the late 1930s 
when the Nazis decided it's time now to begin attacking the Jews. And on that particular night, in many of the, many of the cities in Germany, they went through to where all the Jewish businesses were, the stores, and they, they destroyed all the stores, all the businesses of the Jews in, in the key cities of Germany. Do you know what night that was on? The night of the birthday of Martin Luther. The night of the birthday of Martin Luther. If you'd go on the internet and you type in, like, Hitler, Luther, the Jews, you'll get reams and reams and reams and reams of material that, uh, you know, researchers have examined all the literature and everything else. And uh, it's a tragic, tragic, tragic story, the result of this. And one of the key things that led to this was replacement theology. Replacement theology. Now, in this present age in which we're now living, anti-Semitism is beginning to raise its ugly head again in Europe and also in America. We have missionaries, friends of Israel, in uh, France. The husband is a native Frenchman, his wife is a native American. And they have informed us over the last three or four years that there have been major demonstrations of thousands of French people in the streets of large cities of France picketing against Jews. And they've desecrated synagogues. They've desecrated their cemeteries where they buried their dead. As to the point where some of their grandparents of the Jews, who were young people when the Holocaust took place, are saying to their children and grandchildren, get out of France because we're seeing things going on now in the streets of the cities of France that we, when we were at your children's age, took place in France and in Germany in the early 1930s, and you know what that led to. Six million of our people were systematically eliminated in those concentration camps and all the rest. And as a result, there hasn't been a mass exodus of Jewish families from France, but there's been a significant number of them leaving France, and they're going back to the land of Israel, the only place they feel secure, because the nations are against us and wanting to eliminate us. And uh, in the United States, in universities, in the classroom, many Jewish students are being verbally attacked by professors in the classroom just because they're Jews. We know at the uh, Chicago University, a Jewish young man, a student there, was walking on campus, an automobile pulled up beside him about two or three years ago. Whoever was inside rolled down the window, yelled out, six million of you people being eliminated is not, is not enough, not until all of you are eliminated from planet Earth. Well, we have peace in the world. Uh, Rutgers University in New Jersey they have on campus a group of students who are pro-Palestinian. And about three or four years ago, that pro-Palestinian group on campus put on a seminar one weekend on campus with the approval of the administration. I've had a flyer at home how they advertise this. So this is what they said. We are not permitted to kill Jews here at Rutgers University. However, if you come this weekend, we will train you and teach you how you can kill Jews off the campus of Rutgers University. And so, and on the internet, 
and all the rest. You have white supremacists and anti-Semitic neo-Nazi groups who are putting out all their hatred of Jews over the Internet to infect the thinking of more and more and more people, more and more and more people. Now, I've got to quit, but tomorrow night, I want to relate to you, before we look at some other things with regard to this, one that affects me personally. I'm not Jewish, but of a Jewish acquaintance that I have. And uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. And I'm interacting him with, with him right now. But I'll, Lord willing, tomorrow night, at the beginning of the service, I'll tell you what that's about. But I've literally wept over what he has shared with me. Of how he's been treated as a Jew here in America. While I was a little boy. He's now a lawyer in the area of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But we'll share with you what the experience was. It's unbelievable. But it all goes back to this whole concept of replacement theology. God's done with the Jews forever. Has no present or future plan for the nation of Israel. He's replaced it with the church. And the church is now God's Israel. Therefore, it inherits the promises of blessing God gave to the nation of Israel whatsoever. God our Father... These are very sobering, ominous things we're looking at here today, but they are the truth of what's going on. And we just pray that by your grace, you will help us to look at what the scriptures literally say about your people. We saw yesterday that in Deuteronomy 28, he warned them, this is what will happen to you if you're out of joint with me and and revolt against me and not worshiping me or paid attention to me as the true and the living God. But Lord, we also see that we're accountable not just to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, but not in a persecuting fashion, but also to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, the peace of the nation of Israel, and the peace of the Jewish people. And Lord, to take a stand for Israel's right to exist as a nation state of the Middle East, defend itself against all attackers, but also, Lord, to speak out against all forms of anti-Semitism. As Christians, Jewish people are confused. They, many of them think all Christians are the same. And therefore, when they see denominations of churches speaking out, we've got to get rid of Israel from the Middle East, they think that's the truth of all Christians. Help those of us who believe in your word that you're not done with the nation of Israel and have trusted a Jew your son who became a Jew as our personal Savior and Messiah, to speak out against anti-Semitism and in support of your people of Israel, the Middle East, for your honor and glory. Help us to do this, we pray, in our Savior's name. Amen.